Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here on a sunny day in a very deserted city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the microscope. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined on the programme by Anna Oilinicki. Anna is the Artistic Director of Hype Dance Company in Sheffield, South Yorkshire. Um, Anna, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on with us today. No, thank you for asking me, Scott. Thank you. It's a pleasure having you, Anna. Now, this podcast, first and foremost, is about um, the topic of leadership and effective leadership specifically. Um, But what does that word leader actually mean to you personally? So to me, leadership, gosh, sometimes it means a lot of stress and pressure, if I'm honest. Um, For me, being a leader is about really advocating for something, really, really believing in something and feeling that you have or believing that you have the skills to kind of see that through and for me and my work kind of making sure that that is fed through to a team so kind of creating that tribe a little bit pied piper you've got to have those people with you but leading through to something so a shared a shared goal a shared focus a shared ethos the same idea something that's kind of led and initiated by a leader, but then becomes inspiring as well. I don't know if that made sense, actually. That was quite a long-winded response to that. So it needs a lot of different things. But I think for me, working in the creative sector, it's about being inspiring and it's about knowing where you're heading. I think um, that's absolutely right. I see exactly where you're coming from there, Anna, at that point about obviously taking people with you, being an inspiration to other individuals. But also, interestingly, the first point that you mentioned is that being a leader also comes with a great deal of pressure as well. And Mm -hmm. do you think that's perhaps something that some leaders are a little bit almost afraid of, a bit apprehensive about the pressure of being a leader and sort of dealing with the issues that come with that? Um, I don't think you can be apprehensive to be a valuable leader I think that's almost part of the job if that makes sense Um, if you're leading a company director I am, the book stops with me so in that relationship you you know exactly what you're getting into if that makes sense so I think it's something you just have to cultivate yourself to be able to deal with the stress the pressure, having the answers maybe not having the answers so who to go to to get advice help a resolve does that make sense so it does absolutely yeah i think it can be it can be a lonely place sometimes you know because everybody can at times look to you eagle eyes for that resolve you know they're looking at you for resolve and you're looking around going okay i'm not sure on this but you know let me help resolve let me help you let me find a way so I think some for some people they don't see that side of leadership they don't see that side of directorship or you know company owners that that's kind of glossed over um you know the the image that we we spot around and do very little is often the one that people think and anybody who is involved in business anyone who is managing staff at any time of the year not just now knows that it doesn't come without its pressure and its stress. 
Absolutely right. And um, I think also there's almost a little bit of fear um, when people, of course, are becoming leaders of being caught flat footed in that sense. Because as you say, um, people look to the leader to have all of the answers, but it's important for a leader to recognise their own limitations as well as the limitations of those around them as well. They're not going to have all of the answers to every question. And fundamentally, they're not going to get every single decision right first time, are they? It's still very much a process of learning and becoming a good leader would you say absolutely and i think we say leader but we're not superhuman we're human so whatever a colleague is feeling you know a collaborator is feeling you know we're human too so i think there's something about having uh, an honesty certainly in my sector having a humble approach to who you are what you do what you've achieved where you're going is is really important. Um, you know, we're not we're not robots. It might feel like it at times, but we're not. So I think actually listening to yourself as a leader is really important too. Mm. Um, now we talked a bit about um, how you um, envision um, ideal leadership there as well, Anna. But what would you say are some of the influences behind the way that you go about leading people? Oh gosh, I think the influences for me are experiences my own personal experience. I think, um, you know, I started off going to dance school, so for my whole life, and and even now I still have a dance teacher. I have somebody that that led that class. So, you know, as a child, I can remember looking at this lady who could lead a class of, you know, children. She could teach us how to dance. Throughout my career, different lecturers at university, different people I've worked with, and I think me is drawing oh, I like how they do that. Oh, I like how they manage that. And and equally, I don't like how they do that. And I don't like how they speak. And and, and if I've been led in a situation where I think it, it's not been crystal clear, there's been a little bit of an injustice, there's not been a sympathetic ear, trying to ensure that now I'm in that position, I, I, don't, I don't reflect some of those negative aspects of being a leader. So I think really for me, is personal experience, um, a wider reading. I do a lot of reading, um, you know, kind of books written by people about their lives, business leadership, but written very much from their personal perspective as opposed to an academic textbook because I didn't set out in life to become the leader of a dance company. It, it, It was an organic process that happened. So I think a lot of learning on the job finding your feet, finding your way has to be based on your experiences um, as opposed to the the academic approach, um, of which, don't get me wrong, sometimes I need that and I explore that. But but mainly for me, um, how I've been led and how I've been treated when I've been led. Mm. So from your experience, um, you're very much more in the camp that becoming a great leader is something that you can learn how to do and develop as a skill as opposed to something that just someone is born with from the very beginning because no one's really ready made for a certain role are they as such no and i think again that comes down to dance and and seeing people learn an art form and craft an art form so yes you could have somebody who's you know incredibly naturally flexible Mm. but they have no musicality or timing or awareness or can't project a personality. So it's kind of like the jigsaw of, of bits that go together. Um, 
and I think you do have to have the right personality. You have to have the personality that can put that front on no matter what is happening. You know, and, and there's a lot of backdoor stuff that happens in business that, you know, people don't need to know about. So I think being able to front your business, your company really well is important. And that isn't for everybody either, that ability to be able to switch off and the ability not to switch off as well. You know, this, this isn't a clear cut hours of the working week and then off we go home. You know, that can be taking things home and really thinking about planning and, and forecasting. Um, so I think personality has a lot to do with strong, successful leadership as well. Mm, I would certainly agree with that. And I think um, that kind of personality, that sort of, you know, that drive, that self-motivation, it's also important for leaders to look for those qualities, not just within their employees, but in your case, also students as well. Absolutely. And I think it, it, it comes down to tribe. Um, I think we have so much choice now. Um, in, in my sector, we have so much choice. Who are we going to get to choreograph something? Who are we going to get to lead on that workshop? Who are we going to go to to teach us how to do tap dancing? So there has to be something where you attract that tribe and you give back as well. I think, um, you know, the old hierarchy of management and people or teacher and student, that, that has to make a shift. So people are buying into you and what you're sharing as a leader. What are you sharing experience-wise? What are you sharing knowledge-wise, advice? So I think it, it, it does filter through. Certainly at Hype Dance, um, it, it does. You know, I don't expect anybody there to do anything I wouldn't do. Um, and I have on occasion been mistaken for the cleaner because I'm happy to get my hands if they need cleaning or the dustbin needs emptying, I'll do that. So, you know, I think for me, hierarchy at times is relevant, but in day to day, I don't think that that's that's certainly not the card that I play. Let's put it that way. I can see where you're coming from there. and I think it's hugely important as well that leaders do lead by example and uh, do get their hands dirty at times, as you say, because it shows leaders to be an approachable individual who is having the experience of being down on the ground and helping those around them rather than just being sort of this um, unapproachable and inaccessible figure at the top who's just essentially calling the shots, isn't it? That's not really the way that a leader should come across if they are to nurture those around them and really get the best out of them. Yeah, I think we have an open plan office at Hype Dance. And on occasion, I do wish I had a separate office because you, by that nature, I make myself available. That might be to a, you know, a member of staff. It might be to a parent, someone coming in. So I think, again, it's managing that approachability. You know, yes, come in and see me and chat. But actually, if I'm in the middle of trying to do a funding application and the general manager's asked me to look over a budget and finalise those figures, I can't then suddenly drop that. Do you understand what I mean? So we often joke, actually, and I say that mm. I'm like um, a, a curtain to go round, you know, like she's in, but don't disturb her, and she's out, but not. So I think I think sometimes being super approachable um, and having that relaxed, uh, you know, a, a p- approach can sometimes, some, you know, I can count on, one hand be a little bit detrimental as well um, because people then on the flip side of that can see you not as the leader and not understand what you're doing does 
if, if that makes any kind of sense at all. <laughs> I would say it does. And I think it is important to strike that balance as well, uh, just to make sure that everything continues to run effectively. And also um, that um, I have to say, I have to sort of ask her this question as well, um, with everything going on at the uh, the moment with the whole sort of COVID-19 outbreak and everybody working from home, I suppose when you do need a little bit of time to work behind the scenes, there's quite a lot of that now, isn't there? Apart from, of course, the family environment as maybe interfering in that. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of behind the scenes. Um, to come back to my first point, there's a lot of behind the scenes stress and worry and, you know, forward planning and panic. Um, mm. it, it's one of those things. So what's happening to us across every sector, certainly not just in the arts, is, you know, unimaginable that there's no blueprint we can follow. There's no, you know, there's no fellow colleague I can ring and go, when this happened to you, what did you do? So again, it's that fact finding on your feet. Um, we're doing a lot of behind the scenes at the moment to try to fundraise to maintain our building. We have a building that houses three studios. Um, you know, that's still there throughout all of this time. And looking at ways of teaching and, and engaging with our students that come to our academy, but without compromising what we do, a little bit. Uh, tenacious issue for me but um, you know I believe good teachers you do need to be there Um, you do need to be around your teacher dance is three-dimensional we need to be there to correct and check that somebody's doing the things in the right way so there was a lot of discussion early on about you know do we move everything online do we charge for that because Mm. that brings revenue in but then again balancing that with the creative and and our integrity as a company as well. So there have been a lot of decisions in the last three, four weeks, you know, where you are looking at what will look right. Is this the right answer? Do we look like we don't care? Do we look like we're not bothered? And I think without that blueprint to follow or to have, it's really been a testing time for anybody leading in business, you know, with a team because, you're feeling it, but you're feeling it for your team and your team who, you know, they have families and their own lives. I care. Do you know what I mean? So I think it's mm. been quite a difficult time to not have the answers. Like I said earlier, there are no answers. I can't answer mm. when will classes resume and when will we be back in that building and when will it be coming to light? I don't know. So I'm just trying to do the best I can to lead everybody through this and, and try and nurture some creative time and research time and time away um but that's easier said than done i have to say (laughs) i I can imagine and um it is a a challenging time uh, for business because it's been it's very difficult um, at the moment uh, to be proactive isn't it and really look at the long term because there is so much uncertainty so businesses being forced in its hand to be very reactive and make very sort of quick decisions, but Mm -hmm. measured decisions based upon changing guidance and new guidelines coming out week by week. And when, of course, we don't really see an exit strategy as such, when we don't really know what the long term is going to hold, balancing that out with also being proactive and having contingency plans there, it is incredibly difficult and it is testing business uh, to the limit as well. Um, Mm -hmm. If we do look at the future uh, now, Anna, before we do uh, wrap things up, um, looking at the next 12 months um what do you imagine the next year is going to hold for yourself and for hype dance company and what do you hope to achieve in that time both through this outbreak and of course coming out of the other side of that oh gosh um to to maintain the business 
first and foremost. Um, there's been 16 years of hard graft gone into building um, the dance company in Sheffield and the building and everything that goes with that. So uh, personally, I won't be beaten by this financially. It's, you know, the implications, everybody knows that in every sector. So for me, my first thing at the moment is getting through this, being able to run the business, be back in the game, and actually in in a quite creative way, celebrate what we do and realise that dance and the arts, music and coming together has so much importance in our well-being. And by not connecting with each other in the studio, collaborative projects, we're actually missing out, you know, really valuing what we do a little bit more. And I guess trying to put every event and performance and project that we were going to be doing between March and, let's say, summer, trying to make sure that happens autumn, if not next year. Um, And just reassuring my staff, you know, students we have, collaborators that, you know, we'll be back and and it won't hopefully... um, stop or you know building and getting to our 20th year of trading mm. And I do certainly hope that um, that does all come to uh, fruition, Anna. And what I think would be really nice um, for the listeners as well is if uh, a few months down the line, um, we can look back at this, have you back on the programme and look at this retrospectively, just to see how some of those hopes are borne out um, over the um, the coming months. I think that would be uh, really, really good. Um, but for now, um, I have to say it's been really insightful and also an absolute pleasure having you on today's programme. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me for the listeners' benefit. No problem. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Anna. Um, coming up next on the programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Liz Field. Liz is the Chief Executive of the Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association, and that is the trade body for firms who provide investment management and financial advice services for both individuals and families. Um, I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking to Liz, and that's coming up next. I'm Jonathan White, and we're joined today by Liz Field, CEO of PIMFA, Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association. What a great mouthful. Liz, thank you very much for coming on today. No, thank you for inviting me. No, not a problem. A complete pleasure. And I think uh, it would be a great place to start, if we may. There's maybe a little bit of background uh, for the listeners. Obviously, PIMFA does work in uh, uh, across the board these days, but of course it was only founded uh, uh, three years ago when, of course, um, MAPFA and uh, the WMA were merged. That's right, yes. Um, I think it really was a, a reflection of of where the industry was going in terms of uh, the provision of financial advice and helping individuals with their um, personal financial futures that we felt that it was necessary for the two bodies to merge together. Um, but both, had, well, certainly the Wealth Management Association and its predecessors have been around for nine, well, nearly 30 years yes. now, actually. But you're quite right. Um, as PIMFA, it's, it's been nearly three years now. And the uh, probably a very wise move because uh, the, the uh, uh, PIMFA has been going from strength to strength uh, since. Uh, what would you say at the moment uh, is are, are, are the priorities uh, for yourselves there? Um, I think there are a number of priorities. I mean, we represent a diverse group of um, of businesses which all have 
one thing in common, which is that they face the clients, they they face the consumer. Um, so whether that is face to face or whether that is um, online, uh, it's all about helping individuals to plan and save and invest um, for themselves and for their families. Uh, but we're going through uh, a number of, of key challenges. I mean, um, looking at a, a, I could have a, a macro level, if you like, um, markets are a little turbulent. Um, it's, it's very challenging um, to... Um, kind of navigate the the uh, investment management world so uh, even more reason why you need a financial advisor and uh, and an investment management firm to help you um, because it is quite a complex arena and that's not helped by the lack of financial education uh, more generally so um, if you have that as a backdrop uh, and then politically you have what's going on um, with post brexit uh, and where the rules are going to come from in future, all of that is still to be negotiated. Um, so it, it's a whole melting pot of issues that uh, that our firms are trying to face. Oh, without a doubt. I think uh, it, maybe Lizzie, there's quite a few understatements there in terms of the challenges that are yes. uh, occurring <laughs> at the moment. But there's quite a lot to pick up uh, uh, on the on those points because uh, I, I think it's, 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 a, it's a unique time almost, Lizzie, isn't it, where there are a different set of challenges that advisors and individuals are uh, being confronted with from a lot of different angles. Um, and perhaps if we can start, let's start at the beginning, in fact, you bring up the issue of financial education. Yeah. Now, that's something I think uh, you can talk to anybody in the business and they'd agree with you on that front, Liz. We don't do it properly in this country. Where no. do you think, Liz, it should start from and how do we fix it? Okay, so I think, I mean, the first thing to say is that there's a lot of fantastic effort that we see across the whole of the financial services sector, uh, our sector um, amongst that, where they they try and go into schools um, and provide financial education. You go onto any website um, of some of our members and they've got some great educational material. Um, but there isn't a national framework that 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 wraps itself around the whole of the financial education efforts within our industry. And without that, um, I think they're, they're the, the businesses are facing a lot of um, barriers when it comes to actually getting into schools. Um, I mean, financial education is part of the, um, per, I think it's personal health and social education um, a piece of the curriculum, but there isn't an exam um, that's at the end of it. So when it comes to schools and, and how they're being judged, it's on metrics such as um, exams and without an exam for financial education, um, I think uh, it's go it's just it's just going to keep coming up against the same barriers. Mm. Um, and financial education is not the same as maths. So uh, what we'd also quite like to see is is that we have more um, kind of money type questions within the maths curriculum, because that will also then bring it to life uh, for young people, for uh, youngsters and you know school kids. It will bring it to life because it's about things that they have to deal with or, you know, that they 
they deal with on a day-to-day basis, which is money. So the more that we have that is populated in the curriculum that is about money, um, the better, I think, because that then we'll start to promote a culture of, of savings and investments, which we so badly need in our in in in, in our um, in our country. Without a doubt, Liz, because and again, you've hit the nail on the head. Because there's only so much that can be done without the involvement of the curriculum in schools. Yeah, uh, and you know, you can, as you've pointed out very well, uh, it, companies can try all they all they might, but it, it's difficult if it's not a, a joint effort. Uh, yeah. And I think as, um, uh, for example, uh, with with the new government we have, there have already been positive noises at the very least. Whether they become actions is another <laughs> thing entirely regarding what you could consider a, for, uh, uh, a far more applied mathematics in, in a lot of uh, uh, the system. But ty- time will tell. And that's something I think we could probably dedicate in the next hour to. Liz, yes, I think you're right. We, we probably <laughs> shouldn't. Um now, looking at and a couple of the points to pick up that you've already raised here, Liz, uh, and it goes back to the word you've already said, which is uncertainty. Uh, it, it seemed as if the markets, investors, people, we've been in a state of limbo for the last three and a half years. Uh, we're talking, of course, three months after, two months after uh, a general election that resulted in a a large majority with the Conservative Party, and therefore at least we have now uh, uh, left the European Union without without dragging you down the political rabbit hole here, at least. Is there a hope now that because of that clarity, we may start to see a far more s- far more certainty in the market? And what are your hopes for the next twelve months? Um, I think. I think that we've still got a little way to go because um, whilst, you know, 31st of January came and went, um, you know, we're now we're now in a negotiation period. We're now in a transition period. Um, and for for UK um, savers and uh, and investors, uh, in terms of where the rules are made, there's still there's still not some clarity about that. Um, you know, we're we're still uh, well, we don't know yet whether we're still tied um, or will be tied to the um, European rulemaking um, down the line. That's still to be negotiated. I mean, we've always said that actually for for savers and investors, we need stability in the markets and we need access to funds. Um, however, it, you know. The, the majority of our of our firms look after UK savers, um, and therefore, a one of the positives we see is the ability to have a a rule book that makes sense for UK savers and investors and UK firms. Um, so there's an uh, we think that there's an opportunity there with definitely without um, watering down regulation. So we're definitely not talking about less regulation. What we're talking about is smarter regulation, which makes sense for firms and makes sense for clients. Um, and as we've got a very unique industry in terms of savings and investments um, um, in, Euro- in Europe, England, or U- the UK rather, and and Ireland are unique amongst our European counterparties. So when you have a European rule book or a rule book that is set in Europe, 
that doesn't bear any relation to the model of intermediation that we have here that has caused us problems in the past and we're hoping that we we will be able to affect that in the future with a local regulator and a local rule and a local rulemaker but we will see that is still all part of the of the melting pot so whilst i'd like to be posit- positive and, and optimistic about the market <laughs> um we've still got this period um of uh, of negotiation and uh, until we see where we go to with that uh, and of course, you've got financial services and fisheries amongst yeah, the same piece, you know. <laughs> famous good fellows, aren't they? Indeed, I mean, absolutely, um, absolutely. So we've still got to wait and see, I think. It, absolutely. Um, and it will be an uh, interesting year, number, if nothing else. Um, yeah. uh, now, you, you, you mentioned there at least uh, the role of, uh, of course, regulators. I know uh, in the last month or so, obviously, uh, uh, PIMFA has. Uh, given its fair amount of critique to um, the FCA, um, are they at the moment doing their job correctly? Um, I think part, I I don't envy the regulator one iota. Um, uh, I think if you look at the the number of people that they have in the supervisory team and the number of firms that they have to regulate, um, it, it, it is not an enviable job um, by any stretch of the imagination. Yes, we have been critical, not least of all because we are expecting um, better supervision to prevent firms from failing and certainly to prevent firms from failing in the spectacular way that they have uh, in the last few years, which has impacted on the size of the financial services compensation scheme levy. And this levy is paid for by by firms within the industry. And our firms are a majority of small to medium-sized firms, and their bills have gone up exponentially. Our criticism is that, you know, we we don't object to having an FSCS levy um, or, you know, the lifeboat yes. funds to pay, you know, recompense to to consumers. Uh, and, and our view is has always been that the polluter pays. But the polluters have, have long since folded by the time mm. it comes to any payment, which means that good firms are paying for bad firms. So the system, we believe, is broken. Um, and, and I think that is about the regulatory perimeter. Um, you know, what is it that the, that the lifeboat fund should be protecting? The perimeter is too big. So that, you know, what is the nature of risk? That all needs to be um, uh, redefined, we believe, and recalibrated, which then enables you to determine well, if that's what risk is, then how do we protect it and how do we levy for it? Mm. Um, and that is all linked to better supervision. So that is something we have been critical about. Um, we're in the process of finalizing a paper uh, which we um, which we have positioned in a constructive manner, which is these are some of the things that we believe FCA, you should be looking at in your supervisory process, and we want to help you to do your job better. Now, I I know there's no such thing as a a magic wand, Liz, and perhaps it'll be putting you on the spot. <laughs> but if let's imagine, let's let's imagine you did have one just for the just for this afternoon, perhaps. 
and you were able to change one thing about that uh, system. And perhaps I shouldn't ask this because if your report isn't out yet, you might not want to reveal something that's in it. Um, but if you could, um, wh what would be your number one priority? If we, if we were to, if I were, my number one priority to, to solve the system. In terms of reform. In terms of reform, what regulatory yeah, reform, yes. you mean? Um, I think, oh, goodness me, the one thing. Um, it is a bit of a mean I, question. Uh, it <laughs> is, gosh, yes, wow. Um, I, I think it's about the regulatory perimeter. Sure. Um, I, I think let's have a look at the regulatory perimeter, um, which is, you know, gives some certainty to to clients about what is protected and what is not protected, which also then gives some assurity both to them and also to the advisors who have to advise those clients on what what's the pathway to success for them. And what and and I think if there's some clarity around all of that, then everybody will be will be better off. Great. Now I'm conscious of the time here, Liz. It's already catching up with us. So perhaps if we can take a, a little step back and uh, and look at um, uh, the operations of PIMFR again. It's what PIMFR do, does so well is its ability to build relationships with so many uh, different uh, organisations. Can that really, Liz, be underestimated, the importance of having those working relationships with, with the departments and the organisations that you do have? No, I don't. I, I think it's absolutely fundamental um, to any business, actually. But it's certainly something that that we have in the middle of the stick of rock that is PIMFA. Uh, I mean, we talk about the, you know the values that we have as an organisation. We we are a small organisation, uh, and we can't do our job unless we work in partnership and collaboration with others. So, relationship building. Um, and maintaining and creating a good foundation of relationships is absolutely fundamental to what we do. Without a doubt. And I, I think that's the key point, Liz, isn't it, that that's so applicable to any realm, whether it's business or, or politics or uh, any areas of life. And I think and because of the time here, we, we, I, I must start to wrap up. But um, perhaps I can ask, Liz, looking forward, and I know the next 12 months is full of uncertainty. What are uh, the plans PIMFA has for it nonetheless? Um, so I think our, well, our key priority this, this next 12 months is, is, is to be talking um, much more, um, and we, we, we have been lobbying um, a fair bit on this, but because of Brexit, um, our ability to actually kind of get into, um, see the policymakers on both sides, I think, to have that dialogue has been a challenge. Um, but we're finding that that is changing. They, you know, they, they want to hear from us. So I think our priority is around that regulatory perimeter. Um, and what does what does regulation look like for uh, for us moving forward? But at the same time, it's not just about the future of regulation, but it's also about the future of supervision, mm. because the two of those go hand in hand. Um, so those those two um, are kind of what are, are the main the main areas over the course of this next year. Having said that, um, you know we have a manifesto that's got six that's got six pillars in it um, and regulation and supervision and the future of that is is just um, 
kind of is just one of those things. There are a whole host of another of other things promoting the sector as a as a force for good and as an integral part of a of an individual's kit bag um, for financial and mental well being uh, is is another key strand of, of activity. So I think future regulation, future supervision, and then promoting the sector as an integral part of uh, of um, everybody's kit bag in building their personal financial futures. Well, Liz, there might never be a, a more important year, uh, or has not been in a while, that will determine the future of all of those things, and perhaps never a year where so many people pay attention to what happens to Britain's fish stocks. Um, but it's been it's an absolute pleasure discussing that uh, leadership with you today. Uh, I hope very much we can sit down perhaps later this year uh, when there's a bit more clarity perhaps and talk through a few more things. Thank you. I would love to do that. Liz, thank you very much. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.